listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. A couple of things, excuse me, have been running through my head this week. Um... There's this quote by Basho, that uh, old uh, old Zen master, and he basically basically said, "Do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise. Seek what they sought. Do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise. Seek what they sought." In other words, we can spend an awful lot of time working on the external aspect of awakening as opposed to the most critical step, I would argue. And this is just one version, okay? There are all sorts of different people who would say things differently. But the critical stuff is coming from the inside. In other words, the most important thing is for each and every one of us to begin looking very, very carefully at what is true. And if we do that with enough skill and enough attention and intention, the recognition that we are actually seeking what, say, the Buddha sought, as opposed to looking to become uh, you know, just like the Buddha or just like the teacher or something like that, becomes a much more uh, powerful step in this process. I remember my uh, <clears throat> my teacher. <laughs> we were on this. Uh, it was in a sashin, and usually the, the cool thing about sashins, these are seven-day meditation retreats where it's very, very structured and rigorous and so forth, and. Uh, he gave a Dharma talk every morning, and on this one particular Dharma talk, it was, I guess it was like day three or day four, when everybody's kind of raw. You know, they've been sitting, their, their bodies are sore, their minds maybe are about to settle down, but haven't quite, and, you know, so it's just this really kind of an awkward space. And he gets up there to give his Dharma talk and everything, and he says, why do all of you come at me asking how to become like the Buddha? And I thought, well, this is cool. He's coming right at us. This is, this is kind of an interesting, interesting thing, because usually he would speak in these very strange, bizarre metaphors that nobody could get, and, you know, ah, oh, oh, yeah, you know. Instead, he's just going straight, straight for the jugular. You guys all want to become Buddhas, you know. Um, you, you all, excuse me, you want to learn how to act more like a Buddha. Quit being so superficial. Cool. Quit being so superficial. In other words, come at it differently. What is it that you really are looking for? If, for instance, we engage on a spiritual path so that we can feel a little better, 
maybe feel a little calmer. I know I, I talk about this too much, but you know, we decrease our uh, blood pressure. We uh, we learn how to not attach so much. Maybe we we learn uh, different life skills. We feel part of a community. We feel plugged into something that makes sense to us at a deep level. Now, those are all fine, but you can do that. You can do that game for years and not come close to awakening. It's a real interesting catch for people. They just kind of settle for, well, I don't know, it feels good. You know, people are cool. And, you know. and in fact, that's just fine. But there was this key word, and I don't know who said it to me or how. It may have been one of those automatic things that, that showed up in kind of a, a deep state of meditation or something. I, I wish I could tell you because I don't really know. But I remember uh, there was this word that just kind of kept coming up for me. And if this word works for you, great. If it doesn't, find another. But let there be some type of impulse that guides you. In my case, the word, the guiding word for me was deeper. I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper. Even, even when I thought I'd kind of hit some beatific, you know, explosive place, it was like, okay, great. That's just an experience. I want to go deeper, deeper, deeper. And it's really served. I don't really know how to teach that, and I'm, I'm admitting that fully to you. I don't. I, I'm uh, very confused most of the time. I'm sitting up here, <laughs> I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, I bet that inspires faith in all of you. Uh, <laughs> Can I have my money back? <laughs> I could use that 15 bucks. I'm going to go get ice cream. At least I'll have something to show for it. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. And I will give you nothing. Good. Nothing. Yes. Um, I know that's kind of a cliche, but I, I, I also feel very, very strongly about the, the idea that um, um, it's not... It's not good to waste time. <laughs> Please don't waste time. So, what does that look like? What does not wasting time look like? I think it looks like a vow. It looks like a vow that doesn't have to be expressed publicly, but a vow within to go deeper. A vow within not to settle for the window dressing. Not to settle for what makes you feel happy or feel good, but that which actually services this expanse of consciousness within you. Because that's going to help facilitate a speedier awakening. A deeper awakening. This doesn't mean that you uh, you can leave here and go be a jerk to everybody. I still recommend trying to you know live a life where you're you're not attaching to things and where you're 
you know, orienting yourself around compassion instead of uh, hatred or, or greed or something like that, where you're actually looking to, to get past the delusion, if you will. All that's great, and I think it serves to help till the soil. But um, that soil doesn't do anything unless something's planted. And so if there is a desire in you not to just kind of say the, the words, but to actually awaken. I plant those seeds. Do it on your own. And maybe it happens right now in meditation. You know, hallelujah. All right. But I, I would hope that it's actually deeper than that. Deeper. What do you really want? What do you want before you die? had the most interesting conversation with a young person this last week about this work, this work of uh, awakening. And what I really enjoyed about this person was how direct they were. Um, and asking me asking me very very pointed questions uh, you know so so you're enlightened you know things like that which is like one of those that's like one of the questions that most most teachers tend to just kind of go ah, you know um, and I of course didn't answer um, I, I just kind of talked around it and and the reason why is that it's one of those questions as a teacher you're damned if you do and damned if you don't if you say yes they go yeah you know, they immediately, the, the walls just shoot up, the doors come down, you know, spikes. And then if uh, you say no, um, they, they start poking, I think, in kind of uh, in ways that just allow their ego to run even in circles even faster. So, so anyways, I didn't really answer the question, but kind of... Um, uh, Started, started in the dialogue just answering as, I guess what I want to say is just being as open as I possibly could with, as being, being as indirect as I could to keep the mystery alive. Uh, and the, uh, the conversation kind of took off the minute this, this uh, young person asked, well, how would you say your life is different now than, say, prior to the majority of your sitting? That was really a cool question because there are some really just basic concrete ways in which life has shifted pretty radically. Um, I have noticed that, uh, I say this fairly frequently, but that things often hurt more, but matter less. That there is a deeper sense of what is. And if what is is something that is painful, uh, emotionally or physically, 
it oftentimes is brought in technicolor. There is a centering, though, that comes with the practice, or maybe I should say a recentering that comes with the meditation practice that pretty much schools you when it comes to dealing with discomfort. You begin to work with it differently. It's not a threat. It's part of the process of life. So that was of, of interest. Um, and then, of course, the question was, uh, well, what did you, did you have any of those satori's? Uh, that was a cool question. Did you ever have any of those satori's? Now, satori, for those of you who aren't uh, familiar with the, the Zen lineage, at least, the uh, satori is, um, is the enlightenment experience. Uh, and I think that there's a lot of baggage that goes with the word satori, because it, and people confuse it all the time as if you have a satori, that means you're enlightened. No. Having the satori is merely a pointer in the direction of truth. The truth of who you are. So we have these experiences where we uh, feel uh, as if we are nothing other than the deep singularity of the universe. And then we kind of slowly come back into the world. Sometimes it takes 15 minutes. Sometimes it takes days. Sometimes weeks. There's oftentimes uh, uh, physical sensations that go with this that once again can last a short amount of time, a long amount of time, a really long period of time, whatever. It's all this cool stuff, but that's what it is. It's stuff. It's window dressing. It's not awakening and should not be confused with it. Awakening, and the definition that we're working with here, is not so much that everything is delusion, therefore nothing matters. There's another step that goes with it, and this was perhaps the coolest part of, of uh, the dialogue I had. Um, so, so what does it mean to be awake? And I uh, was incredibly... Um, I, I, I lacked a tremendous amount of eloquence at this point, uh, by my own estimation, I was basically trying to explain that it's recognizing the deep singularity within and without. And then driving to work. Then kissing your kid goodnight. Then making sure that you don't try to carry too many plates on your arm as you're clearing um, the dinner table, you have guests, and whatever. It's, it's being present. It's being aware. It's being part of this big mess. And having the ability to, if you will, jump from the stage of delusion, the stage play that's going on, into the audience at will. You could even take that a step further. You could say that... Uh, I use the, the theater metaphor all the time where we are watching essentially uh, uh, our egos on stage delivering 
brilliantly written lines um, uh, and very creatively uh, staged productions. And if we can watch it, we're actually free of what's going on. Um, as I was talking to this person, I, I, I brought up this metaphor, and uh, uh, they asked, and, well, wait, so it's just, just the audience? You just stay in the audience, and that's all you've got to do? It's like, well, yeah, but you also can look for the, um, look for the aisle. <laughs> look for the aisle. Look, for the, uh, look, look in the back, see who's doing the lighting design. Look for the exit. What's outside of the theater? Who else is in the audience? Are they still asleep? Um, needless to say, this was one of the more rewarding conversations I've had about spirituality in quite a while. It was really, really neat. Um, and what was cool is that after we were finished, there was kind of like this nod. Reaches in, pops out a cigarette, gets on his skateboard and goes. <laughs> totally unexpected. Just this really cool, it was just this really cool moment, or a series of moments. Um, And so I wanted to offer that as a, a kind of an offering of transparency, <laughs> I guess. And also to let you know, everyone, let everyone know that this work is not impossible. One of the great great legends of all time is the legend of the Buddha. I say legend because I have no idea whether this guy or gal ever existed. It's totally unimportant. It doesn't matter. And for you purists out there that think I'm speaking heresy, fine, I'm sorry, but that's just the way I look at it. It's not about what the Buddha said. It's about a man who decided to go deeper. It's about a person a normal person who decided to go deeper. And they wouldn't settle. They wouldn't settle for just feeling better or transcending just their body. They wanted the whole works. And uh, he did it. We think. At least that's what the tradition says. Now, if he could do it without a teacher, without a teaching per se, and without a sangha, it's a hell of a lot easier for you. All right? <laughs> it, this is not something, this is not something that's impossible. We just look at our lives with absolute attention. We till that soil. We till the soil of our lives with absolute intention. And we let those intentions be vows. 
we plant seeds, our deepest wish, boom. And then we tend to that seed with watering and sunshine. And that happens whenever we sit, whenever we meet stillness consciously. That's exactly what's going on there. And that flower will show us something. It'll show us something that goes beyond anyone's definition of beautiful. It goes way beyond anything you can imagine. And what do you have to sacrifice to get there? All the window dressing and everything else. It's demanding, but you come back into the world having experienced this in a way that allows a certain quiet management, a certain informed management, uh, and recentering in joy. Now, what do I mean by that management? In other words, we, we tend to not get lost so much in our desires. It's not that we don't have desires. I hope, actually, this process uh, isn't something that, I mean, you're hoping to become totally free of desire. Desire is healthy. I desire food. Yay! Go get some. That's healthy. Okay? Desire that comes out of greed. I want her. Or I want him. Or I want more of that. That is a different kind of desire, isn't it? It's been infused with a certain toxicity that comes from the small self. But if you can watch it happen, you're halfway there to actually being so conscious that your vow begins to kind of supplant the, uh, the inkling or impulse to act on the desire. Same thing with um, anger. Anger comes from an awakening of negativity. It comes from a non-acceptance of the way things are. Whenever we feel angry. It's like, damn it, no. This should be this one. Okay? Now, does this mean in this process of awakening that you are no longer angry? Um, I would say you probably, angry can be very, uh, very healthy. All right? Certain kinds of anger can inspire very compassionate activity. As long as, as long as, I should say, there isn't any clinging. In other words, if you can recognize that your negativity, the negativity that you live with, is in either a dormant state uh, an acute state of arousal or somewhere in between and you know that the ferocity of your anger, the level of ferocity is always about the greater uh, negativity, the greater the negativity that is arising. It's matched with that. It's, it's hooked to it. You can begin to see through your anger. Your anger begins, begins to be something that is expressed and then falls like all other things. Similar uh, experience with sloth. A sloth is a, another way of saying avoidance. 
if you were an avoider, I'll do the dishes later. Right. Well, you know what? Sometimes that is really appropriate. Sometimes it is totally appropriate to do the dishes later. As long as the small self doesn't get mixed in and decide to do the dishes later because it just doesn't want to. Right? That's an avoidance. So, I, I, it's, it's in, in essence, it's delusion, a refusal to face what is and then deal with it appropriately as it arises. It forestalls something and then becomes a looming ball, uh, you know, wrecking ball that, that pushes plans out of whack and everything else if we avoid. So sloth or avoidance is something we should watch very carefully for. Worry is another. Um, worry is quite simply uh, uh, an anxiety at low level or a fear at a high level of the future. And I wish I knew who said, help me if you guys know who had this quote, worry is the most useless of all emotions. That's just such a great Dharma tidbit. Um, worry is different from planning, being prepared. Being prepared is always having a plan B or something like that. Well, if this doesn't work, then I'll do this. this okay. But worry is, oh my God, what if... And then maybe, and, the, and what you start seeing is just, again, this spiral. It takes us under. Next, and one of my f favorites is uh, hiding, staying away from awakening by attaching to doubt. This is a place where ego is at home, totally at home, in the world, in the realm of doubt. We can see it as an attachment to some definition of, uh, or some story relating to what success should look like. Well, it should be that, says who? My ego. Oh, then it must be true. We don't know. And being comfortable with not knowing allows doubt to kind of collapse under its own weight. Doubt is always an evaluation of a mind-centered position. Doubt is an evaluation of a mind-centered position. It's always an opinion. It's always a conviction. It's always a small self version of what is true rather than a big self unfolding of what is real. And that reality is realer than the small one. Both are important, but the big reality, the reality of all things interconnected, all things temporary, all things being expressions of the infinite is far more integrated. So looking at those things, looking at doubt, looking at restlessness, worry, looking at uh, sloth or avoidance, 
looking at anger, looking at desire, looking at those, what we call the five hindrances, looking at those, becoming friends with them, letting them guide your particular version of the path, letting them become teachers, internal teachers. When we let this stuff in, it makes tilling the soil so much easier. It makes the flowering, the spring, happen so much faster. Take a couple minutes for Q&A. Yeah, go ahead. When you talk to me about, um, let's say, founders of religion, spiritual practices, mm-hmm. the stories that are told, and fundamentalism, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Why... Why do we as humans make up, let's say, I'm saying they're made up, but embellish it all with, with stories and kind of obliterate what the, the initial teachings are and so forth? Why, why does that happen? Why does the, why do the, it sounds like you're asking, why, why, do, why does culture or whatever get in there and, and make religions into something that deviate from the core teaching? Yeah, to where it just veers off to who knows what. I'm not. I, I, I really, I'm not much of a scholar, but my sense is that this occurs because it allows very naturally for the ego to come in and manage spiritual work as long as there are things for it to attach to. So egos love rules because they can either abide by them and feel like they are something special or they can rail against them and feel like they are something special. In either case, ego feels like it's something special. Especially if it can, you know, if it can memorize uh, everything that's in each book of the Bible, or you know, chapter and verse of, of uh, you know, the Quran or the you know the the Talmud or the Bhagavad Gita or the Lotus Sutra or the Diamond Sutra or whatever. I mean, it can become religiosity as opposed to it, it can become about, I should say, religiosity pious behavior, external window dressing, as opposed to the direct path to realization. And the cool thing is, the direct path to realization is the shortcut. Because the minute realization begins to kind of shake through us, is the minute that compassion, is the minute that, that being unattached, is the minute that all of these things arise spontaneously rather than the other way around. We can spend an awful lot of time trying to manage our non-attachment, you know? And that's okay. It helps, it helps with the, like I said, that the field. But the shortcut is to wake up. Wake up and recognize that the theater experience that you're having, you're not chained to your seat. You can get up and leave the theater. No matter how damn good that stage play is, you can get up and leave. Recognize that it's a stage play first. It's always, you know, best thing. And then know that there's more. There's truth. The truth is out there. <laughs> X-Files. Yes. Just, just a little X-Files humor. You. You're very welcome. Pop, yeah. So back to... 
practical example, like take, take worry, anxiety, for example. I can see how it doesn't serve me. I kind of want to get rid of it. At the same time, there's kind of this physiological basis for it, where I, I think I probably evolved from people who were scanning the edges of the forest, and I was probably, those people, my, my ancestors were probably the first one to say, hey, you know, there's a bear. Mastodon, best to run now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, so how, how to work with that? Is that just really a matter of awareness? The minute you're in a situation where you see bear, or if you're really lucky, mastodon, <laughs> the, the most enlightened thing you can do is run. Okay? Because that's responding in the moment appropriately. Right? And if there's someone you can help get out of the way of a charging mastodon, you're going to help them. That's enlightenment. That's compassion. Okay? There's a lot of scanning going on too, though. Right, right. Now, scanning, so to speak, if we're actually looking for more mastodons, okay, and we're working ourselves into a mastodonic frenzy, <laughs> uh, then we're then we're not really living a life. We are living in a way that's totally reactive to an imagined mental projection. And that's delusion. So the scanning, I love that. That's just a great way of, way of putting it. I think, I think perhaps the great way of, uh, or, or a great opportunity for any of us is when we are consumed by worry in that moment we can feel the ego's skin we can get a very very clear sense ah there's clinging because you can't worry without clinging and the minute you see that there's clinging the seer of the clinging is not clinging and you can get a taste in that moment of what freedom is like so maybe it serves a function. So, so maybe it serves a function. Um, I would say there's nothing that doesn't serve a function. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All things serve a function. But in this case, our worry or our anger, this is especially cool with like people that we're intimate with. The minute your spouse or your kid or somebody makes you angry, you have a gift in that moment. Welcome those situations, because right there, again, you can feel ego skin. And that which is recognizing it is free from it. That creates just this little bit of space. And over time, that space increases. It becomes more, um, it's dynamic, but it's also very, there's a stasis that kind of starts to happen. This kind of this, this openness. And we begin to live in that open spaciousness as opposed to having our armor so close that any little flick of the armor kills us, you know. So it's a, it's a gift. It's a gift. The minute, the minute we start feeling that greed, we start feeling that anger, we start feeling that avoidance pattern, the, you know, couch potato, couch potato heaven. All those things, you know, worry, doubt. And by the way, this is, to, just so you know, this isn't to say that you should never doubt. God, if anybody ever tells you that, never doubt, run. 
Okay? You should always have a very healthy sense of skepticism, no matter what you're doing, especially in spiritual work. Um, and that's why we have Q&A. That's why we have a Sangha. We have a group of people who together, working together, can uh, uncover something deeply personal. And in uncovering that deeply personal thing, what's on the other side of the wall of the personal is something that's impersonal and something that is beyond words and beyond concept, has no qualities. So you found just in the rec continual recognition of those patterns, you've been able to let them go for that oh, time. Oh, you mean for me personally? Like, yeah. I, I, you know, it's, it's one of the most interesting things is, is uh, I think, f for in my life, is not being either uh, confined by past experience or future want. It just doesn't hold me the way it does. It, it's, and I, I, I hesitate to say this, but um, most stuff really does not matter. That's the way I, I find my life has kind of uh, uh, evolved over the years since um, I, you know, kind of had this, these great, great teachers who showed me a way. Um, and you feel absolutely compelled to share that. That's why I'm sitting here. I, it, there's no choice. There's, it's absolutely choiceless. Just, you know. Now, do I still worry? Do I still get pissed off? Do I st sure, sure. But this just doesn't, I just, it just doesn't last. Not real good at sloth. I'm not, I tend to be moving all the time, but it, Jeez, I, the, most, most stuff just doesn't seem to stick. I guess that's the best way I could describe it. <laughs> Watch me get really pissed here soon. Yeah. yeah. Um, just now when you said that most stuff doesn't really matter, I got really like... <laughs> Tell me about that. Um, well, I started thinking about my family, mm -hmm. my daughter, my husband. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents. Right. To me, that seems like one of the only things that really matters. Right, family. You no, know, I, I recognize that I won't always have them. Yeah. It, it's it's tricky for me to make decisions involving my family, but still recognize that even that doesn't matter. Well, let me be really, I want to try to dance delicately around this because I'm not saying that your family doesn't matter. What I am saying is that they're not yours. Okay? They're not yours. You do not possess mom and dad, daughter, husband. You don't possess them. Okay? You're dancing with them. And that's the way life goes. So, if, metaphorically, if we can look at the way you are dancing with these people that you love so much. Do you love them enough to let them go? Or do you love them so much that they become something akin to possession, something you want to maintain, something you're not willing to accept as is, but instead you want to make them a certain way that you can count on, so a way that they can become totally reliable? That's natural. Most people want to do that. They want, they want to create literally a wall around the things they want to protect 
and in that wall are daughter, son, husband, mom, dad, everything else? Screw it. Dog. Oh, yeah, dog. Come on in. <laughs> Whatever. But you get the idea? And so what they do is they create this false reality, and that false reality is actually generates worry. It generates worry because there is also this recognition that you can't keep them. They're borrowed, if you will. So it's one of these things we begin to kind of loosen our relationship. The best way I can describe it is as I watch my daughter, um, I have to let go of her every single day. Otherwise, I keep her small, right? And the same applies for my lovely wife. I have to let go of her every day. Otherwise, it's not love. It's a possession. And then, it's greed. So, it's subtle. It's subtle. It's great stuff to just kind of, I mean, my encouragement to you is just play with this a little bit. I'm not giving you anything you don't already know at the core of your being. Actually, I'm never giving you anything that you don't already know. But the, the, the practice, I think, can become really, really powerful. Uh, as you, you know, look at Anya, you know, what do you see? You see just this gorgeous little expression of the infinite, right? She is infinity. So are you. You're both made of stars. So is your husband. So are your parents. So are all those things that are on the inside of that wall that you may have built. And so is everything on the other side of that wall. So then the big question is, why is that wall there? Thank you so much.